All right. So last week we finished John one, uh, one through eighteen. The uh, introduction we had talked about, of course, uh, how the law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When we talked about the beatific vision, seeing God face to face, and how no one has ever seen God. However. Uh, he who is at the Father's side, right, or in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, has made him known. We, we talked about that, and we also talked about the sections that we'll be going through in the life of Christ, and kind of just flew through those rather quickly. So now we're going to be going through the genealogies today, but before we do that, we'll talk a little bit about uh, messianic expectation, right? What were the What was the expectation regarding the Messiah coming into the world. Uh, basically, was Israel expecting him? Was Israel anticipating that he would come? And I say the answer is yes. Is yes. Uh, the, messianic, the Messianic expectation at the turn of the first century was, it's been described and was actually used in a conversation I actually had this past week, with uh, a member of our church here. He used the term, and I think it's correct, a fever pitch. Uh, People were expecting the Messiah to arrive soon. Uh, Scholarship is is talked about, and it's it's been pointed out, that, uh, that during, around the time that Jesus appeared, on the scene. Around that time, there was actually um, quite a few people who claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, this is pointed out in Acts uh, 5, um, how Gamaliel, do you remember when Gamaliel gives his famous advice about, you know, don't stop these men, right? Because if you are, because if it's not of God, what will happen? It'll fade away remember fade away. right but if you are but if you uh, but if they are of God right you'll find yourself to be opposing God he mentions uh, some pretenders some messianic pretenders so messianic expectation was pretty high at this point um, J Julius Scott jr. in his book Jewish backgrounds in the New Testament which I've, I've quoted before in reference he's a very good resource about intertestamental period time frame. He talks about very messianic expectations during the period. Uh, to quote him, the messianic hope of each specific group within intertestamental Judaism probably had its own distinctive features. It is usually believed that some groups, for example the Sadducees, completely rejected the concept, although he quotes somebody later on that kind of challenges that because of the fact that Sadducees did hold to some scripture at least, if not all, uh, of the Old Testament, although it's kind of popularly believed they only believe the Pentateuch. Don't know really how true that is. But uh, just talking about how there's a broader messianic hope in them actually believing that, but to continue the quote, in contrast, Qumran expected more than one messiah or eschatological figure and produced lengthy descriptions of the final war as, as well as of messianic Blessings and banquet. Continuing the quote, by the time of Jesus, the majority of common people thought of the coming Messiah primarily as a political, military king who would deal with the external crisis faced by the nation. End quote. So, there was, just suffice to say that there were quite a few uh, different expectations or um, beliefs about the Messiah, but they did believe that he was coming and that he was going to be on the scene soon. Okay, there was going to be on the scene soon. And that's that's important to note that people are waiting for him. Does anybody remember in Scripture, and we'll get to it, Lord willing, uh, when we're studying the life of Christ, um, it met, does it, does it, you remember a story early on in the life of Christ where it mentions somebody who was eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah? Simeon. Yes, Simeon, right? Simeon. Yeah, God had made him a promise that he wouldn't pass away until he'd see the Lord's Christ, right? The Lord's Messiah. So we know at least one, 
right? We know at least one, and early on in the disciples in John 1, we, we, we hear the excitement of, we have found the Messiah. So there were people looking. But I would say that the Scriptures set an expectation for it. Of course, the Word of God itself did. There's a, a person who's been gone long ago. His name is Alfred Edersheim. In his book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, this is a great quote. He talks about the Old Testament. Listen to what he says here. The most important point here is to keep in mind the organic unity of the Old Testament. Its predictions are not isolated, but features of one grand prophetic picture. Its ritual and institutions part of one great system. Its history, not loosely connected events, but an organic development tending towards a definite end. Viewed in its innermost substance, the history of the Old Testament is not different from its typical institutions, nor yet these two from its predictions. The idea underlining all is God's gracious manifestation in the world, the kingdom of God, the meaning of all, the establishment of this kingdom upon earth. That gracious purpose was, so to speak, individualized in the kingdom actually established in the Messiah. End quote. So what's the point? The Old Testament's a whole. It's not a loosely connected record of stories. It is written with a purpose. And that in and of itself is pointing to the Messiah. Who the, with the, who the Gospels make a big deal about is Jesus of Nazareth. That's who He is. Now, if you guys were here uh, months ago where we talked about the Messiah in the Old Testament, tried to make the case that the whole Old Testament is actually written to point to Him. That it's about Him. And we had talked about many different passages and, and many different uh, things that pointed to the Messiah, but we'll actually look at some of these prophecies here, right? Um, some of these prophecies. And I just want to say, uh, men, that I've, I've hammered this point before and I'll hammer it again, that the unity of the Bible is an excellent apologetic for it. The fact that it is a book, that it's a cohesive whole, while it has diversity within the unity, is all written with one purpose. It's to talk about Jesus. And to talk about God's plan to glorify Himself in His rule through His Son. It's apologetic not only for yourself to bolster your faith, but also for your children. Right? So, you know, children, you, it, it's been popularly said already, talking about the problem, right, of moral therapeutic deism, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, right? That's been said again and again, talking about how, how people believe that basically that they have this religion that you just need to be moral, right, be good, right, therapeutic, right? It's to be a therapy to you, right, to help you, and that there is a God, he's de- but it's deistic, right? He's far away. He's distant. When you look at this word as a cohesive whole and it all being written to point to the Messiah and how everything is fulfilled in the Messiah, you can't have moralistic therapeutic deism. You have one cohesive story about God's kingdom and God glorifying Himself and how He works His plan out through Christ. So let's talk about some of these uh, prophecies that actually set the expectation or this fever pitch for uh, the Messiah. We'll talk about um, we'll talk about the branch prophecies, the prophecies of the branch. Now I, I know I mentioned before, and you would be wise to heed me when I tell you that um, you know, as, as men, have you ever had a, a man in your life? that has really influenced you? I mean, someone besides your own father. Yeah? Would anybody be so open as to to share just one example of that? Somebody who's a man who influenced you positively in your life? 
Besides your own dad? Yeah. My uh, pet, Jerry Brown, who turned for Christ, he was intentional about me being in my Bible and then not just being a, hoop, uh, a hearer of the Word, but being a doer and going out and sharing my faith to everybody, you know, to the stranger and, and just have a passion for the lost, which is what Christ had. He had a passion for the lost. Yes, he did. That's great. Anybody else care to share one? That That's great. Your pastor. Yeah, Michael. My older brother, Matt, was super influential in my life, uh, especially when I got to college. He kind of really showed me what it looks like to uh, be a man and uh, have a fervor for the Lord and the passion for the lost. Excellent. Great. How many of you have ever had somebody influence you and you kind of you met them but they were kind of just influenced you from afar? Maybe something that you read, right? Or a life that you studied to emulate. Anybody qualify for that? Yeah, yeah. My passion for the life of Christ is really fueled, and I mentioned his name before, Doug Bookman. I mean, he, when, when I heard him speak about the final week of of the life of Christ and got his resources on the life of Christ, things changed for me. I mean, when, when you know, I was a believer, I was born again, all, all of that. But there are kind of turning, you know, certain turning points in your life when you get a hold of something and it just kind of just changes you. And that's that way for me. And I would just, again, highly encourage you, if you go to his website, He's got a whole huge Dropbox where he's got his Life of Christ resources that are just open for anyone to use. I'm just encouraging you, it's out there. In any case, he references some of the branch prophecies, but we're going to reference some of these as well. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah 4. And there are several branch prophecies. How many of you have heard of this, like the prophecy of the Messiah being called the branch? Yeah, the branch. This actually uh, shows up in the New Testament in kind of an indirect way, and we'll get there when we get there. But um, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2, would somebody care to read that for us? Isaiah 4 verse 2. You want to do that, Rob? uh, In the last day, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established, the the highest of the mountain. I think you're in the. I think you're in the wrong passage. Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, verse 2. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. You're still in Isaiah 2. You said Isaiah 2, did you? Isaiah 4. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's all right. Isaiah 4, verse 2. Oh, man. Yeah. Lord, help. You know what? I probably misspoke and you just listened to me too well. That was the problem. That was probably your problem there, Rob. Um, uh, uh, Isaiah 4.2 And that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be pride and glory of the uh, survivors in Israel. Alright, let's everyone turn to Isaiah 11. Someone read verses 1 and 2. Really, the whole chapter's about him, but and what he does and what he accomplishes. But the first two verses, Isaiah 11. Someone. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Amen. 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 And uh, it goes on just to talk about how he, he, uh, how he judges in righteousness. How he talks about how he decides with equity. How he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he'll slay the wicked. And, uh, he'll talk, and it talks about even all creation being at peace. And it gives you these pictures that are just incredible like the wolf dwelling with the lamb. And the cow and the bear grazing together, and lions eating straw like an ox, right? Just this, just this utopia that the Messiah brings. 
and how in chapter 12 is about the song that Israel will break forth into on that day when the branch does this. Chapter 12, verse 1, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Alright, go to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah has a couple of prophecies of the branch. Also, if you guys, I don't know if you guys take notes or not, we won't get to this because I kind of want to try to get to the genealogies today and get moving. But you, if you're taking notes, you can write down Zechariah passages of the branch as well. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Zechariah 3, verses 8 through 10. And Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. But I want to hit these uh, Jeremiah passages here. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Someone read that for us. Amen. Amen. So the branch here is connected to who? David. Say it again louder, brother. David. 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 Yeah. So it's David, right? So the branch has to come from the Davidic line, right? Has to be the Davidic line, and thereby, because it's from the line of David, therefore he must be a king, right? There we go. A king. But look what he's going to do. Justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved, right? And Israel will dwell securely. He will be called our righteousness. How appropriate. Now go to this one, Jeremiah 33. This, this here is about as rock solid as you can possibly get. You know, we talk about the Lord being faithful and being faithful to His covenant and to His word. Look how much God puts Himself under obligation here to fulfill this. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26. Okay. Now, uh, someone just read the first two, uh, first uh, three verses, 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Jeremiah 33. Okay, does that passage sound familiar to you at all? Where did we just where did we see this? What's that? Well, Isaiah, yeah, there's the branch, but that's basically very much like Jeremiah 23 that we just read. It's like almost like a repeat, right? Look at the next look at the next two verses. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Right? He says that David will never lack a man. Never. And look, look how much Look how much he puts, him, he puts himself under obligation here. Look at verse 19, starting there. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. So if you can do that, if you can make me, what's he saying here? Let's just stop here. What's he saying here? If you can make me do what? Change day and night. Change day and night. Right? 
If you can make me stop having the day come, and if you can make me stop having the night come, if you could do that, then what? Verse 21. Then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with Levitical priests, my ministers, we won't go into that part, but for our purposes we'll focus on the one with David. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of my David my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So he's saying that if you can make day and night stop, then I'll break my promise to David. So what in effect is he saying here, man? It's impossible. It's not going to happen. God will do it. Isn't that great? Because as men, we're called to keep our word, right? And how often do we do that? Hopefully, more often than we don't. Amen? That's what we're called to. Right? Christ kept His. We should keep ours. But sometimes we have good intentions and we can't fulfill our promise, right? Is God like that? No. No, He's not. So He's going to keep His promise. You think faith, you think Israel that actually did love the Lord kind of kept that promise right in their back pocket? Saying, well, God said. That if he could break his covenant with the day and the night, then he would break his covenant with David. We look, oh, sometimes we got to look at the word and see how God puts his people and paints himself into a corner to where it would seem almost impossible that God, for God to fulfill his promise, right? Or in a place to where God has to deliver his people in a miraculous way, otherwise. They're toast. Right? God could have led Israel anywhere in the wilderness, right? After they got out of Egypt. But where does He direct them? Well, to the mountain. But before that, to the sea. On purpose. Why do you think He did that? So that when Egypt came, that it was only He who could deliver them. And we'll even see here, uh, when we get to the genealogy, that God puts Himself in such an obligation that it would seem like He couldn't even fulfill this promise. But of course, God never breaks His word, and we'll see how He fulfills that. So anyway, so we've got these branch prophecies. So Israel has this expectation of the righteous branch, right? It was going to establish justice and is going to bring peace to the earth and is going to be a descendant of David, right? And that it's definitely going to happen because God doesn't break His word and day and night is going to continue, right? Then you have, we could also look at servant songs, right? There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, if you're taking notes, you want to write these down, look at these. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Uh, Isaiah 50, especially verses 4 through 7. And then, of course, the one that we are very familiar with. Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13 through Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, chapter 53, verse 12. Right? This servant of the Lord, this servant who is given as a covenant to the people, Isaiah 42, who will, uh, who will do God's will, and Isaiah 53, who will suffer for the sins of His people. You know, even though Israel might have had this idea of a suffering Messiah... And they would have good reason to if they were astute students of Scripture. Because Isaiah pointed this out ahead of time. Let's keep going. Any questions so far? Yes, brother.
We're getting there. <laughs> but you're right. But you're right. Pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah, we're one king. We're going to talk about that one king in a minute, Lord willing. So we got the servant songs, which I wish we had time to go into, but you could look at those. And then we've got... Now, I quote, um, I quote Doug Bookman here. Uh, there, he talks about another book, which I don't think gets enough credit in, in some circles of, of Christianity. Uh, to quote him, the primary reason for the spirit of expectation at the time of Jesus' ministry, the prophecies of Daniel. He's talked about, I've, I've you know, uh, listened to what he said about that, and it, it's, it's so, so good. Daniel puts a time frame on it. Daniel serves to tell Israel, okay, let me give you some hints on when he's coming. Key passages to look for here are Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 9. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 9. We've talked about Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 here. Uh, what's Daniel 2 about? Anyone? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And someone else, what does he dream? You can turn there. It's okay. You can turn there if you need to turn there. Right. Yeah, all the uh, yeah, the image, right, of all the different all the different kingdoms, right? In, represented by different materials, different elements, right? At the top is what? Head of gold. Who's that? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. Next you have what? Chest and arms of silver. Who's that? The Medes and the Persians. Alright. Next you have what? Bronze. Who's that? Greece. Greece, right? After that you have what? Legs of iron. Who's that? Alright. And then you have after that the feet and the toes that are mixed with iron and clay that come off of that fourth world empire. Okay? Then after these empires come what? A great stone, right? Not carved by man's hands. Meaning that its origin is supernatural. Divine. That stone comes and does what? Crushes, right? The statue, right? And then his kingdom, right? And then his kingdom is established. And it's never destroyed. Now, they had access to this. Right? And Daniel even told us what it's who these like who this is. Right? At least the head, right? So if you're an astute student and you're like, okay, well, you know, you're talking about world empires that affect so you've got head of gold. Chest of silver, iron bronze, legs of iron, and you're counting the kingdoms. All of a sudden, what do you realize? That you're there. That you're there. This is not newspaper exegesis. This is reading the Word of God for what it says, looking at things around you, and realizing, oh my. We might be here. Daniel 7. What do we have in Daniel 7? We have a vision of four beasts, is, is what we have in Daniel 7, right? The vision of four beasts. And the beasts coincide with the metals or the elements if you were. They, they all coincide. So then you have this fourth beast, right? And he's got ten horns, right, on his head. Ten toes, ten horns. And uh, ten hoes, uh, toes, ten horns. And then what happens is that the horn, uh, where the beast is killed and his body's destroyed. And then someone comes after that to receive a kingdom. Who's that? The Son of Man. Right? The Son of Man. Then it talks about, um, as for the fourth beast, this is verse 23 in Daniel 7, 
There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which is different from all the kingdoms that should devour the whole earth and trample it down and break into pieces. Then he talks about the that horn rising up, speaking words against the Most High, right? And this, and then, uh, and then base, and then he speaks words against the Most High. Shall wear him out. And uh, verse twenty six. But its court shall sit in ju- the court shall sit in judgment. And dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. So you have this expectation again, right? So you can go through the beasts, right? Okay, first one, Babylon, Babylon, next one, Persians, next one, Greece, fourth one, Rome. Oh my goodness, what? We're here. See the point? See the picture? Right? And then Daniel chapter 9. Yeah, Daniel... Nine, you've got the prophecy of the 77s. The 77s. Uh, Harold Honer in his book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, does a lot of great work on this. Just suffice to say, you've got a decree in Daniel 9, if you just turn there, verses 24 and 27. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture, I'll, I'll grant you that. Uh, what's going on here is that Daniel... Uh, that Daniel here, he's reading, and he's reading in Jeremiah, and he's trying to figure out, okay, Lord, how much longer do we've got in this captivity, right? And they've got 70 years. Anybody remember why they have 70 years of captivity? Yeah, the Sabbath, the Sabbath years, right? So for all the ones that didn't take, they're going to be in exile for. And then he's reading, and he realizes... Oh my, time's almost up. See how Daniel just, you know, he's very much, you know, he's very much associated with timeliness and kind of trying to see see God's plan. And so, in any case, um, what happens is is that Gabriel comes to him, right? And uh, he talks about this prophecy of the seventy weeks, and there's a lot to that. But he talks about, in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. And then, um, then verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out to restore and build Jerusalem the coming, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince... Now. ESV says there shall be seven weeks and then for 62 weeks. It kind of breaks it up. New American Standard puts that together. says basically uh, it combines the numbers here of seven weeks and 62 weeks, which I think is better. So you add that up, there's 69. And the term week uh, is a Hebrew term Shavua. And it basically can mean a week or it can mean basically like a cycle of seven years. A cycle of seven years. So, what you get, and this is kind of a complex argument, but they figure out, well, what's the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? What it probably is, is when Artaxerxes decrees to Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. And this happens in the month of Nisan, 444 B.C. So, when you do the math... Four forty four BC and you come up with sixty nine times seven is what? Anybody can do the math off their top of their head? Four and eighty three. Now there's more complications to that, but when you get to the end of the sixty nine weeks, you know what year you get? Thirty-three A.D. Isn't that a coincidence? Except it isn't. Why? Because God's in control. And there's more to it than that. But the point is, my point in this, not getting to all the different interpretations and the meanings behind it, but the point is, is that God's people who are alert and awake are watching for this. And maybe they don't have a calendar right on their wall kind of counting down each day, but they have a general idea of the passage of time. 
And those who are listening for the Word of God, they know that Messiah is coming. Does that make sense to see how God's people who are looking for Him can kind of see the signs and realize, hey, Messiah should be coming at any moment? that makes sense? Any questions or comments before we move on? You know, uh, have you guys, you guys in a D group? Most of you guys, if you're not? Okay. Have you guys been through um, 2 Timothy, uh, first chapter? Um, oh, I'm sorry, second chapter, where it talks about where Paul is exhorting Timothy to be a good soldier of, of Christ Jesus, right? Been through that? And he gives the example of the, of the, uh, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, right? He gives those illustrations. And then he gives this verse, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Word of God's a lot like that. There are rich treasures in there, men, that can be mined if we are strong enough and diligent enough to look for them. Amen. Satan is he's a master strategist, and I don't want to give our enemy too much credit, but... He knows that if we mind that Word of God, that we've put the, the time into it, that we will know more about our Lord and Savior and love Him more and be more committed to follow Him. Right? If we really do the hard work to dig. So what do you think, men, would be a temptation then that Satan would put our way to make us not do that? Our time. Our time? What else? Our thoughts. Our thoughts, right? Distract us. How about short attention spans? Giving us things that might be good to be a tool to use, but yet will, over time, wear down our attention spans. So that we've already trained ourselves not to give ourselves time to even look into things like this. And then... When we do feel the Spirit prompt us to dig deeper and to study more, and we fight against our flesh in that, and we give in, then we uncover another sin, right? Which can be laziness. Man, is it just me, or is that, is that like a huge sin that you fight in your life? That is gigantic to me. And you know you get you get victory over it time and time again, but you know, man, it just doesn't want to die. Anybody else like this? Yep. There's a reason for that, right? There's a reason for that. We got to keep fighting it. And I would encourage all of you to pray for that. Men, let's pray for one another in that that the Lord would help us fight our laziness and our easy, easily distractedness, that we would discipline ourselves in our time to give to our Lord, to study His Word, to our family, to teach it. Let's commit to do that. All right, moving on. So, God prepared His people for the arrival of the Messiah. So let's go into the genealogies here for the next few minutes that we've got. First time, well, we had the sample reading before, but this is the first time we're actually kind of harmonizing. It's kind of neat. All right. So we've got Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and Luke 23 through 38. All right. I'm going to have, uh, I need one person to pick Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I need somebody to volunteer to read that. Someone, thank you, Tony. And I need somebody to, let's not read it off here because it's easier to read it off your own Bible. I need somebody to read Luke 3. 23 through 38. There's a lot of names, guys. You've got to be bold. Luke 3, 23. Thank you, Keith. All right. All right. All right. Are you there, Tony? Are you there, Tony, with Matthew? Go for it. Aram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nassim, and 
Thank you, brother. Great job. Okay. Keith, Luke 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Hedi, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math. Oh, I, I might want that one. You're fine. Keep going. The son of Zemine, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mahath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Metnah, the son of Mattaha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nash. Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Hainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. You don't have to say anything else the rest of the day, brother. You're good. <laughs> All right. What what are some things just real quick that we jumps out to you about these genealogies? Matthew is dyslexic. Went backwards. <laughs> Matthew went backwards? Right? Yeah. And then yeah. Luke goes forward to start. Yeah. Or maybe I got that backwards. That's all right. Yeah. So who does Matthew start with? Abraham. Abraham. Why do you think that might be? Jews? Yeah, his audience, right? His audience are Jews. Right? And his point is to prove that Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the throne. That's his point. If you want to start and win yourself over the Jews, you, you start with Abraham. Now, how does Luke work, though? He starts with, what's that? 
right? Jesus' dad, right? And then he works all the way to? He works all the way to God. Any reason for that, you think? Right, yeah. Luke, you know, it's people talk about, and it's right, I think, that Luke talks about, you know, Jesus being, he focuses on humanity, right? Focuses on humanity, the fact that he's the Savior of all people, right? Not just Jew, but Gentile, right? So it's connecting him to all of mankind that way. So Matthew focuses on legal descendancy, but Luke focuses on physical What else do we notice? Matthew, Matthew says father of. Luke says son of. I don't know if that's. Yeah. Kind of yeah, here's something interesting about that. The word son is not in the original language here in Luke. All you've got is this. Every time you see the son of. It is a it is the definite article, the the in the genitive form. Great. That's what you're seeing there. Except for one. So we'll get to that point here in a second. Something else that you'll notice about the genealogies. How does Matthew group his genealogy? Generations of 14, right? You can add it up. It, it'll add up, although some people dispute it adds up. <laughs> Notice, though, that he counts somebody twice. Who's he count twice? David. David. Any particular reason why you think that might be? Yeah, the, the drive the point. Yeah, it, the focus is on David here, right? That he's the son of David. Now, it's it's been talked about too that in in Hebrew there's a way that letters have numeric value. Okay, I forget the term for it, but that letters have numeric value. And when you take the consonants, because that's how Hebrews wrote, were in consonants, right? The vowels were just memorized. Imagine that you just wouldn't know where to put the vowel in, right? You wouldn't even write it out. So the later group of the Masoretes like put points above, underneath, and below it, to, so that people remember where the vowels are, and it's their best estimation of it. But they would write in consonants. So of course, you got DVD. No, you have David, right? You just submit. You put the A there and the I there. Well, if if it's true, if if the letters have numeric value and they add up. You add up their value. Guess what number you get? Sometimes you just got to sit there and be like, God, right? There's a problem, though. There's a problem. Both genealogies point out who is the father. Of Jesus, that is. Who's Jesus' father listed in both? Joseph, right? Are these genealogies the same? No. Now, sometimes they're, they're very similar, but they're very different. How do we account for this? Well, let's go to that. But it says here, right, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. So it would seem in Luke that it actually is tra trailing Joseph's genealogy, isn't it? Maybe. Notice that as was supposed. Now guys, parentheses are not in the original text. Right? We have to supply them. 
to, to, to help us. But here's the thing. Remember I was talking about the son of, right? And how in Greek it's put by this, right? It, it's indicated by this, this uh, form of the article. There's one place that it's not there. Anybody want to guess where that is? It's in front of Joseph. So the son of Joseph is not there. There's debate about how this is handled, about the difference between the genealogies, and both uh, this Robert Thomas and, and Stan Gundry and A.T. Robertson agree, uh, point the solution out, and I think it's true that the thing is, is that Luke's genealogy is Mary's and not Joseph's, and that the parentheses should really be. Let me see. Is this going to work? Let's see. No, it doesn't work. Anyway, uh, the parentheses really should be around Joseph. So that the point is, is that being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Basically, Joseph is a parenthetical insertion into the genealogy. He doesn't belong there. Now, it's in the original text, but the point is, is that people think he's the son of Joseph, physical son of Joseph, but we know what? He's not. So Luke puts it in there to say people thought he was the son of Joseph, but really he's not. We just have the parentheses in the wrong place. That it should be after Joseph, so that jo Jesus is the son, or the better yet, the physical descendant of Heli, who would be whose father? Mary's father. Which makes sense, right? Because he's Mary's physical descendant. There's more to the genealogy. We'll pick it up uh, next week. Any questions? Or we'll we'll go over. It. We'll recap this again, so we won't lose it. Trust me. Any questions or anything before we pray? All right, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these men and this time we've had together. I pray, Lord, that you would implant this word in our hearts. I pray you would prepare our hearts for worshiping you. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.